Welcome to Mano a Mano, U.S.-Puerto Rico, Journey Toward a More Perfect Union. A podcast amplifying the voices of leaders, thinkers, activists, and allies from across the political spectrum who support Puerto Rico's fight for full democracy and self-determination. I'm George Salas Garcia, Executive Director of the Puerto Rico Statehood Council. And I'm Martin Rivera, Director of Advocacy. On today's episode, we'll discuss the recently released and first memorandum by the Puerto Rico Advisory Committee to the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. This memorandum focuses on the insular cases and their effects on the civil rights of the residents of Puerto Rico. But before we delve into the report, we want to update our listeners as to what is happening in Congress and how it's impacting legislation to resolve Puerto Rico's territory status. We also want to briefly discuss the history of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights and its critical role in addressing democratic deficits, impairing the civil rights of U.S. citizens. And to further examine the findings by the committee's memorandum, the chairman of the committee, Professor Andres Cordova, will be joining us later in the program for an exclusive interview. Excellent. So let's get started. So, Martin, tell us what's happening in Congress these days. It seems like a little bit of a mess. Uh, yes, it's a little chaotic. They're actually coming back from recess, both houses of Congress this week. The Senate returns today. The House returns on Wednesday. But there are several different priorities. There are a little bit outside or must-pass priorities for Congress. One, we're facing a government shutdown at the end of the week. There's a laddered CR, which I like to call kick the can down the road. And what they did in Congress was basically slide the can in half and kick it two times to two different dates. So right now we're facing that big uh, appropriations fight to either fund the government for 2024, which we're already five months into the year, into the fiscal year, or whether there's going to be an RCR. We're facing a government shutdown right now. So at midnight on Friday, we'll find out if the lights of the federal government stay on. So that's a tough situation during this huge 2024 election year. What impact is it having on any issue that isn't the most basic thing that Congress needs to do, which is just basically kind of continue keeping the government open and operating? How are other issues faring in this circumstance? Like you mentioned, this is funding the federal government. So this is the number one priority of Congress. And given that we're facing a shutdown, several other legislative priorities have taken a bit of a backseat, but it doesn't mean that the progress is still ongoing. There's also some other issues when it comes outside of appropriations and funding the federal government. There's also issues in regards to foreign aid. Right now, the Senate, before they took the recess past the Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan aid package, there's still question as to whether the House is going to pass it, but that's another priority that the Congress is currently facing. The one good thing about our issue is that our issue is still moving forward. Obviously, there's the must-pass, keep-the-government-open priorities, but when it comes to the issue of Puerto Rico status, we're still pushing forward and gaining co-sponsorships on the two legislative priorities that's pushing the issue of resolving Puerto Rico's territory status, which is the Puerto Rico Status Act in the House, H.R. 2757, and in the Senate, S. 3231. And where are we in the co-sponsor count for those two bills? Currently in the House, we have 93 co-sponsors, bipartisan co-sponsors, which is continuing the bipartisan support for the bill. And in the Senate, we have 23 sponsors. Almost a quarter of the Senate is supporting this bill. You know, I think that really that lays up the circumstance that we have, right? So uh, advancing things through the legislative process right now and getting something passed through the House and Senate is pretty much kind of blocked off for not just the 
issue of Puerto Rico's territory status and resolving that, but pretty much any issue aside from the bare minimum the Congress is being able to handle, which is just keep the government funded and operating. But like you said, there's still other things that can develop during the legislative process. What do you see as the biggest opportunities for us to continue advancing this issue legislatively right now in these next coming months? Well, the one thing that supporters of statehood should focus on is on the two committees of jurisdiction. In the House, it's the House Natural Resources Committee, and in the Senate, it's the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee. The first step is requesting a hearing on the bill or on the issue in general to move the issue forward. Because given the gridlock in Congress, you never know once an opportunity presents itself. I know there's been a lot of issues in regards to immigration, foreign aid. There's going to be must-pass bills such as the National Defense Authorization Act that you could see how resolving Puerto Rico's status is an issue of national security. But basically, what we need to do before we get to those measures later on, uh, I like to call them the Hail Mary pass, put them in a must-pass bill. We need to have those hearings in both the committees of jurisdiction. The good thing is, and the hope that I have, is that we will be having a hearing in one or both of the chambers within the next coming months before the summer session. I really think that's critical for our listeners to be aware of that any advocacy efforts that you can do to help encourage the members of Congress, particularly in the House Natural Resources Committee and in the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee, to hold hearings on this issue, to continue talking about it. That's really the most important thing that we can do legislatively right now, other than continuing to add co-sponsors to both of these bills. Yep. I couldn't have said it better. Like That's why it's up to you, supporters of statehood, people here stateside in Puerto Rico, to call your legislators to tell them that you demand, after 125 years of being a territory, after the inequality and detriment that the U.S. citizens of Puerto Rico suffer, that it's time for the Congress to finally act. We see progress, but it's up to you to continue the fight and to let Congress know your voice, that this is an issue that you will vote on, that you choose your candidates on and that it's important to you as a matter of civil rights for the U.S. citizens of Puerto Rico, our people, nuestra gente. So talking about civil rights, I think that's a perfect segue into the work of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, a nonpartisan government agency that was established in 1957 by President Dwight D. Eisenhower. And basically its main purpose is to assess what are the different circumstances of civil rights impacting U.S. citizens throughout the entirety of the United States. They basically are a fact-finding agency. They basically gather information. And the way that they do it is they create uh, local advisory uh, committees across the different states. And for the longest time since the creation of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, they have never had an advisory committee in Puerto Rico or any of the U.S. territories. And that finally changed in the year 2000, where Congress passed legislation encouraging the creation of the advisory committees in the U.S. territory. And the Puerto Rico Advisory Committee was, in fact, established with appointed members in 2022. And today we'll be speaking to the chairman of that committee, Professor Andres Cordova, about the first written work product that the advisory committee has produced which is a fascinating development because it's part of the way in which this committee gathers information about the civil rights uh, impact of Puerto Rico's current territory status and the issues that are impacting the U.S. citizens of Puerto Rico today in a way that can be brought to the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. And eventually, that U.S. Commission on Civil Rights can mention 
recommendations and come up with specific actions and suggestions that the U.S. Congress and the federal executive branch can take on this issue. And this is not something that is inconsequential. It is incredibly important because the history of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights is such that the reports and recommendations that they have passed have actually led to major changes in federal laws. Martin, can you tell us a little bit about some of those changes in federal laws? Well, given that the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights was established in 1957, it was critical in the pushing of civil rights issue that led to the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The history of the important work of the commission has impacted the Voting and Civil Rights Act, which is directly linked to the issues that we're dealing with today in relation to Puerto Rico because of the territorial status. If there was any commission that could help elevate this issue at the federal level, it's the work of the, uh, the Commission on Civil Rights, which has the history of passing meaningful legislation to end discrimination and provide equality for all U.S. citizens, regardless of location or race. We in the Puerto Rico State Council have had the opportunity to participate. Last year, I actually uh, testified in uh, one of the public hearings that was held by the Puerto Rico Advisory Committee. Uh, we presented our views and positions uh, about this issue and explained all the different ways in which we understand that Congress and the federal executive branch uh, are essentially violating the civil rights of the U.S. citizens of Puerto Rico. Part of the contributions that we made have actually found their way into this initial memorandum. Now, Martin, can you please give us a very brief overview of what are some of the main elements of unequal treatment and disenfranchisement that were identified within this memorandum? This memorandum, obviously, it covers the insular cases, and we'll delve more into that with Professor Cordova. But what it basically found that because of the territorial status of Puerto Rico, Puerto Ricans are entitled to the same representation, same benefits, services, and programs merely for residing on the island. Mainly the discrimination, even though it's literally discriminating on the U.S. citizens of Puerto Rico for living in the land of their forefathers, the way the insular cases has shaped it is that because you're an unincorporated territory, you're a possession of the United States, but you are not a part of the United States. So it's up to Congress to decide whether to extend certain benefits and rights. And under the current territory status, those benefits and, and services could be, even if Congress were to give parity when it comes to services, though any subsequent Congress could always rip those away. That's why this memorandum speaks about the issues impacting Puerto Rico, how they're detrimental when it comes to services such as SSI. Uh, right now, we're fighting for a transition from NAP to SNAP in the Congress, and it's questionable whether that's going to happen given all the political turmoil that's going on. But when it comes to Medicaid, Medicare, Puerto Rico gets unequal services provided to them merely for residing on the island, despite us providing into those programs, because people forget that Puerto Ricans do pay federal taxes. They pay payroll tax. And if you make your income from a federal source, you pay federal taxes as well. So it's it. The memorandum just highlights those issues and why it is needed now more now more than ever to finally resolve Puerto Rico status after 125 years. And we'll get into the specific legalities of each of the insular cases um, that's led us to this process later on. But basically, this memorandum is a call to action for the federal government, for Congress to actually 
move on this issue after 120, again, I'm, I'm repeating myself, but 125 years of being a U.S. territory and about to be 107 years of uh, the residents of Puerto Rico attaining U.S. citizenship. So it is crit it's so important that this memorandum is coming in now, especially in an election year, for, again, more Puerto Ricans live stateside. More, now more than ever, it's time for us to have a strong voice to demand that our leaders actually act on this issue once and for all. And that's why we're excited to have Professor Andres Cordova as our guest on today's show. Andres Cordova Phelps is law professor at the Inter-American University of Puerto Rico. He is the chairman of the Puerto Rico Advisory Committee to the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, and he's also a commissioner in the local Puerto Rico Civil Rights Commission. Professor Cordova is a graduate of the College of Holy Cross. He has an MA in philosophy from Boston College, and he is a JD from University of Puerto Rico School of Law. Professor Cordova is the author of multiple essays, law review articles, and is a regular contributor of opinion editorials to The Hill. In 2021, he served as a witness during congressional hearings on Puerto Rico's political status. And today, we have the pleasure of hosting it on the Mano a Mano podcast. Welcome, Professor Cordova. Thank you so much for joining us uh, on the podcast. We're great. We're great. great to be here. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. We wanted to start off hearing a little bit from you about what exactly are the insular cases? And can you speak to the preliminary findings by the advisory committee about the effects of these insular cases on the civil rights of the U.S. citizens of Puerto Rico? Well, yeah, let me begin perhaps uh, explaining to the listeners and the viewers why we cho chose this, this theme as our charge in the advisory committee. As you know, the, the Civil Rights Commission created the advisory board of Puerto Rico in 2020. And it was finally set up in 2021, and we decided uh, unanimously by the members of the committee to discuss the insular cases because we felt and we feel that the civil rights of Puerto Ricans and American citizens in Puerto Rico and residents of Puerto Rico in general are affected by uh, the insular cases because they exclude us from participating as full, full citizenship in the American democracy. So we decided that the insular cases was probably the, the most correct theme to discuss in the Civil Rights Board. And as you know, this has been going on now for 125 years. Uh, so we are very conscious of the impact of the insular cases on the exercise of our civil rights. And to your question, as I summarize the insular cases, insular cases are a series of Supreme Court cases that solved in the turn of the century, 20th century, between 1900s and 1922 approximately. The cases tried to address the question of whether constitutional rights of, of American citizens extended to the uh, territories acquired after the Spanish-American War in 1898. We're talking particularly Puerto Rico, uh, at that time Puerto Rico, Guam, and uh, Philippines. Uh, of course, the 20th century has come and gone. And uh, now we have Puerto Rico, the United States Virgin Islands, Guam, and Philippines is no longer in the equation. But fundamentally, the question of the answer case raises was whether the, the territories acquired under the Treaty of the Treaty of Paris of 1898 were the full rights of the Americans, other residents of Puerto Rico, would apply. And Philippines also, of course, and Guam. And at that time, there were two cases that were solved, which I think very important and this whole history, which are the Lima versus Bidwell and Downs versus Bidwell. Both cases were 
handed down by the Supreme Court, one after the other. But they, are, they have a particular difference which illuminates the insular cases. The Lima versus Bidwell was adjudicated prior to the approval of the Euphoria Act in 1900, which is the first federal organic law which was uh, legislated for Puerto Rico. Philippines and Guam have their own legislation which addresses their particular issue. So the Forker Act was for Puerto Rico. In any case, the, the Lima basically de decided that New York, uh, Bidwell was the, the Ports Authority Commissioner in New York City, could not impose tariffs on goods coming from Puerto Rico to New York because under the Treaty of Paris, Puerto Rico had been, like, become part of the United States and therefore they had to be similar uniform tariffs across the United States. That's important because that's, that's the stage for Downs versus Bidwell, which was a case precisely of tariffs imposed on some goods transported from Puerto Rico to New York City after the Forker Act was approved. And at that time, the court decided, contrary to the Lima, that Congress had exercised its sovereignty under the plenary powers in the Article 4, Section 3 of the Constitution and had decided that Puerto Rico was a territory but had not been incorporated into the United States. So then the, the, you had the famous or infamous phrase that we belong to but are not part of the United States. Now there are two opinions in the, the, that case which I think are important to, to, to address. One was one by the, the lead opinion by Brown, Judge Brown, which basically assumes, which I, we feel is a very racist argument, which is, pretty much follows in the footsteps of Plessy versus Ferguson of 1895, the same court by the way. And that case basically saying that Puerto Ricans were not uh, meant to be become part of the United States, they were part of a foreign country and they have foreign traditions, so therefore the, the, the constitutional rights do not automatically extend to, to Puerto Rico. Now that's interesting because when you compare it to White's opinion, which is a concurrent opinion, which means, which really sets forth the insular case doctrine of non-incorporation, which basically says that it's not so blanket of a statement, but it has a selective application of constitutional rights depending on the issues that were raised at a given time. So in that sense, the white opinion in the insular case and non-incorporation doctrine holds that constitutional rights do not automatically apply to the residents of Puerto Rico. That Congress basically has certain discretion in deciding which to apply and which not to apply depending on the circumstances. That only fundamental constitutional rights are applicable. Now, of course, that begs the question, what are those fundamental constitutional rights as opposed to which are non-fundamental constitutional rights. So it's a distinction that creates its own sense of problems. There were several other cases that followed uh, between in the first two decades of the 20th century. Before we get into those other two cases, I think it'd be really important kind of to rephrase and you know make sure that I, I, I'm understanding and the, our, our audience understands what you just explained. So these two cases basically set up a legal framework where for all practical purposes, Puerto Rico and the other U.S. territories at the time basically belong to the United States. So Congress essentially has the authority to control all mm -hmm. of the policies that are enacted there and to rule and govern over there. But they're not really fully a part of the United States. They're, they're separate from the, the body politic mm -hmm. of the United States constitutionally. And then the other piece, which I, I hear you saying, is that these cases basically set up a structure where some rights could be applied by Congress and some could be denied by Congress. It, it essentially allows Congress to turn 
the switch of the constitution on and off, depending what the circumstance is. Yes. Is that correct? That's correct. And of course, from 1900 to 1916, the Puerto Rico Puerto Ricans were American nationals. We weren't citizens. So the only issue of citizenship becomes a real, real issue after the Jones Act in, in 1916, which basically also throws a wrench in the doctrine, basically, at that time, which we're still living with. Yeah, Professor Cordova, you hit the nail on the head as to my next question, which is we are near the 107th anniversary of the extension of the U.S. citizenship to the residents of Puerto Rico. Can you elaborate and speak on why, despite being U.S. citizens, and this goes into the insular cases, specifically the Balzac position, as to why the territory status of Puerto Rico allows for the continued discrimination of the island's residents? Well, the American constitutional history, the, the category of territory is a geographical real estate category. It is it's not a category that is conceived for treating on the civil rights of the citizens or of the population. And I think the best example of that is just to see the history of, of uh, the territories from the Northwest Territory Ordinance in 1787 up to the Fork Act, if you will. And territories basically were always understood to become part of the Union, uh, to be integrated at some point in time as states. And there's a, a whole lot of politics involved in that, of course, the Missouri Compromise, the Civil War, and the whole other issues which would come to mind, but the whole issue of the territories as a real estate category was pretty much uh, set during the 19th century. Now, when we come to Puerto Rico, and then you create the, the insular cases, Puerto Rico and the Philippines, and I think it's important to, as a matter of historical record, I think it's important to realize that the, a lot of the doctrine is responding to the realities of the Philippine experience. The, the whole history of the Philippines vis-a-vis -vis the United States is markedly different to the one of Puerto Rico in the United States. But for purposes of constitutional categories, it was pretty much thrown all under the same categories you know, or concepts. But in any case, the whole idea of citizenship basically in 1916 confuses the problem because now you have a territory which under Downs versus Bidwell in the insular cases are not belong to but are not part of what do you do with this American citizens in Puerto Rico? So there you start starting having certain problems. That's the next case that I think is very very important to, to mention which is Balzac, which in 1922 Balzac basically was a case of a criminal libel at that time, which was basically accusing an American citizen, a Puerto Rican, of libel against the sitting governor at the time. And there was this charge basically of a criminal, and he asked for a jury trial at that time. So that's, that's the case that goes up to the Supreme Court and saying whether the Puerto Rico have a right to a jury trial in a criminal case. The chief justice at that time was Howard Taft, which, who also had been the president, and before that he had been the governor of the Philippines. So he was very well aware of the realities of Puerto Rico and the territories with regards to the United States. In any case, he decided at that time, the Supreme Court decided at that time, that citizenship did not mean that the territory had been incorporated, that Congress still had the powers under the plenary powers of Article 4 to determine which rights were applicable and which were not applicable. And American citizens in Puerto Rico, if they wanted to have full citizenship, all they had to do was just basically move stateside to the continent. But the territory itself does not become incorporated because of citizenship. And that, that becomes basically one of the continual debates and discussions between legal scholars and, and politicians, of course, uh, of whether the American citizenship supposed the integration of Puerto Rico in the American body politic. Professor, 
Is it just me or is that different than the approach that the Supreme Court took in the cases related to Hawaii and Alaska, Mankichi and, and Rasmus? Well, it's different because there are historical differences. In Alaska, as you know, basically when the United States Congress bought from Russia in 1867, if I recall correctly, Alaska basically was still operating under the, I would say, under the Northwest Ordinance principles. The Native American population was still rather small, comparatively speaking. And secondly, from a constitutional point of view, the United States Supreme Court had pretty much already adjudicated the rights of Amer Native Americans with regards to the context of the constitutional theory. I refer to you to the, the, the Cherokee cases and the domestic dependent nations. So the whole, there's a whole other, I would say, line of constitutional reasoning to treat Puerto Rico, which was also in some ways applied in Hawaii. Now, Hawaii is interesting because Hawaii in 1898 was annexed, literally, by by United States. It was not obtained by virtue of the Treaty of Paris, to put a mild word on it. It was a coup d'etat. <laughs> Basically, there's a, a taking over the, the kingdom, and then the, the American citizens who were in Hawaii asked basically to be annexed and therefore economic interests of course were very uh, paramount in that whole issue and also the need for a coaling station. I think also that, that we forget that today but the whole idea of uh, maritime travel in the turn of the 20th century required coaling stations partly to get to the Philippines and get to Asia. Puerto Rico by the way had the same purpose in the beginning initially. The whole idea of coaling stations for Latin America. So there, there are, of course, very clear geopolitical reasons why the territories were incorporated. But Hawaii was, not, was never thought of, expressly at least, within the context of the insular cases, because it's, the way it came into the jurisdiction was different. So there are a couple of cases of, of where Hawaii is mentioned, which people, some, some legal scholars have tried to apply the legal principles of, to Hawaii, but I don't find them persuasive. I think Hawaii, when it was annexed, it was incorporated off the outset. So, so there was a different treatment to Hawaii than there was to Puerto Rico and Guam. That's really helpful. So I think what you've laid out is the first set of insular cases created this institutional structure that essentially allowed Congress to treat Puerto Rico as belonging to it, but not being a part of the United mm -hmm. States, and then to turn on and off the Constitution at will. And then the Balzac case basically said, this continues to apply irrespective of the fact that the people of Puerto Rico are now United States mm -hmm. citizens. So now you have a situation where the actual citizenship of Americans that are now living in the territory is essentially dislodged or, or disconnected from the normal rights that you would expect mm -hmm. under the U.S. Constitution. Uh, because of the fact that Puerto Rico is a territory and an unincorporated territory, mm -hmm. specifically. That's correct. I think the whole, the whole question of uh, the fundamental rights applicable to Puerto Rico, in many ways, even to this day, still tinges the discussion. Because I think it's important to, to uh, the recent case of Aurelius underlines, uh, the whole idea of the insular cases is not only constitutional rights under the Bill of Rights. We think of it that way, be, being the paramount interest, but it's the power of Congress is wider than that. The whole idea of the Downs versus Bidwell, for example, is basically the treatment of the uniformity clause, which is in Article 1, Section 8. It's not in the Bill of Rights. So therefore, when we talk about the rights of American citizens in Puerto Rico, we tend to think of it between the, the Fifth Amendment, the Fourteenth Amendment, or the First Amendment, etc. But we forget that the powers of Congress are much wider than that. And with the, the Congress can legislate to treat Puerto, Puerto Rico differently under Article 1, Section 8, 
They can create different offices, different officers, which are not, behold, not part of the federal government. We have PROMESA right now, which is, I think is a clear indication of that, of that authority. The fiscal oversight law will create the, the supervising supervisory board. So there, there you have basically a good example of how the authority of Congress is much more than just individual civil rights. It is basically the, the right to dispose of the territory as real estate. That power is still there. And that's kind of crazy. I think that most people in the United States right now don't really think of the United States and of Congress specifically on their behalf, essentially holding what you're describing, which I think the most clear and well-known word to talk about this is, is essentially a colony. You're hitting it right on the nail on the, the, the head. And that's where the discussion, I think, is right now. The whole idea of how to characterize our relationship in this colonial or territorial will depend, this is my, my particular point of view, uh, it will depend basically on what do you we want to, to do. If one wants to aim for statehood, uh, for full equality and full participation in the, in the American bon political body, uh, I, I argue that it should not be characterized as colonial for one simple reason. And it's just, when you talk about colonies, you automatically invoke international law as basically as a criteria to determine how you should solve the problem. And that, that raises constitutional questions, not only, not only international legal questions. If you favor independence or one of, one of its modalities, it makes perfect sense to talk about colonialism, so, which is interesting because the whole idea of characterizing Puerto Rico as a colony by people who favor statehood is really a, a re rather recent event of the 1970s and 1980s. Prior to that, statehood is usually didn't talk about or use that category precisely for the reasons I'm talking about. And I think one of the key developments that I've seen within the statehood movement and kind of working as part of it over the last, you know, 17 years or so has really been the utilization of that language because there is a observed need to help the broader American public understand the nature of the relationship and somehow the descriptions of territorial law and case law isn't enough to seal into people's minds that this is something that is fundamentally a form of a political subordination of the people of Puerto Rico who are fellow United States citizens. And I think that's really one of the key challenges. The other problem is that if you do bring this context of international law, and I think some of the findings in the memorandum by the advisory committee point to this, you open up a whole nother can of worms in terms of how the issue should be resolved and what are the entities that have the power to resolve it. What is your perspective with regards to that? I think the, the problem of Puerto Rico is a constitutional question, it's a constitutional problem, and it should be addressed within the constitutional framework. I understand and I agree with you wholly. I think the, colonial, the, the word colony and colonialism is a very powerful rhetorical expression, and it's much easier to explain and it's much more easier to object to it. I, I get that. They're very clear in that regard. But you, there is a problem that flow from that. If we characterize Puerto Rico as a colony under international law, first of all, you have a constitutional problem. And, if, and I think it was more recently addressed in Pueblo versus Sanchez Valle, which was the 2016 case, where Supreme Court unambiguously said Puerto Rico has no sovereignty. Every time you talk about colonialism, you're invoking the people of Puerto Rico as a judicial concept. And you're arguing that it has some kind of sovereignty as a people under international law. Well, that's a problem. That's a problem because if, that's, if that is the case, then such as Valles is wrong. Puerto Rico does have some kind of 
vestiges residue of sovereignty. That's why the comparison in Sanchez Valle is so interesting between the Native American tribes in Puerto Rico. The Native Americans had some kind of primeval sovereignty still to this day. Well, in Puerto Rico, we don't. In that regard, the independence nationalist party movement in the 1940s and 50s argued basically that the sovereignty of Puerto Rico was opposed to the United States. When in 1952 the, the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico was approved and the Constitution of Puerto Rico was approved, I need to decide what that, what that means for certain sectors of the population. From a constitutional point of view, it was the framework which, in which we have been working to this day. It is interesting that the Nationalist Party and the Independence Party at that time boycotted the Constitutional Assembly. So there, there, there was a recognition at that time that in order for the sovereignty of people of Puerto Rico to be recognized, it could not be under Public Law 600, which authorized the Constitution. Now, if you start talking about Puerto Rico within the constitutional model, which we have now, under international law, then somehow we, have, we preserve some kind of sovereignty, which I don't think is constitutionally true. So in that regard, we are within the constitutional context. We have to promote basically the, the statehood, equality through statehood of the territory. There are, there are political reasons for that too, you know. I think it's interesting to know that how American public officials never refer to Puerto Rico in the public capacity as a colony. You have individual politicians maybe using the word when they're trying to address an issue, but you'll never find the State Department, you'll never find the office in the White House talk about Puerto Rico as a colony for this particular reason. Uh, is that the territory is under the United States Constitution. Um, so that, and I, I also emphasize, for example, every year we know that people in Puerto Rico go to the United Nations to the committee, the colonization committee, to have Puerto Rico included or again in the territories with no self-government, and they never pass from the committee to the national to the assembly, the general assembly. From an international law, positive law, the United States, the United Nations does not recognize Puerto Rico as a colony. So, Professor Colavaro, since you do believe that this is a constitutional problem, a domestic law problem, that it's up to the to resolve domestically. Some of the witness testimony in the memorandum, including from the resident commissioner, spoke on why merely revoking the insular cases would not fully resolve the political discrimination endured by those in Puerto Rico. This is kind of a two-tier question. Do you believe that the only means to fully resolve the island's inequalities is either through statehood or nationhood? And are the courts or Congress best suited to resolve this issue? Yes, well, I think it's, a, it's undoubtedly, I think we say, we say so in the memorandum, it is a political problem. It's a fundamental political problem. I think the last 15 years there's been an attempt to judicialize the question, taking cases to the Supreme Court. I think after the latest cases of Sanchez Valle, Aurelius, Sanchez Valle Madero, have shown, I think, that that, that avenue is not necessarily the, most, the more promising. It is, it is a political question, I, I, and I have no problem with that. I think it, it should be a political question. So whether revoking the insular cases will eliminate the problem, I think the President Commissioner is right. No, it won't. Uh, insular cases in of themselves is just a doctrine by the Supreme Court which allows this, some kind of discretion to, to Congress to, to act on, on the territory. So if you eliminate the insular cases, we're still a territory. If we're still a territory, Congress will still arguably have the same kind of discretion, maybe without applying full constitutional rights to their citizens under the Bill of Rights, but not so under the other other precepts of the Constitution, the structural questions, arguably. I'm not so sure that's the case, but that, that an argument could be made to that. The truth of the matter is, with the history of the insular cases, 
for in order for Puerto Rico to become a state, it has to be incorporated, either for one second before it becomes a state, or, or for 60 years, as in case of New Mexico, where it passed from territory to, to statehood. So the issue of time is really it's not, it's not the question I'm addressing, at least. I'm just using the issue of concepts. And the incorporation has to be a necessary step. I know, for example, in the, in the hearings in the previous Congress, there was a suggestion by an officer, somebody in the Department of State, that incorporation could occur once Puerto Rico became a state. That's an interesting thesis. I hadn't heard it before. Um, I'm, not, I'm not close to the idea. But that's important because if Puerto Rico were to become a state, then through we could become a process basically of adjusting Puerto Rico to the American legal and constitutional issues and questions. You mentioned incorporation. Right now in Congress, there is one current bill that has strong bipartisan support, which is the Puerto Rico Status Act, which is viewed as the, a, a consensus bill, as an agreement of all sides. You did mention incorporation, and that is something that this bill doesn't matter. If Puerto Rico chooses statehood in a following plebiscite, then it, it will be immediately admitted into a state of the union within a year. I just wanted to get your particular thoughts on the bill itself as it's currently written, yeah. because it's my understanding that, again, it's up to Congress to decide the process. Congress could admit Puerto Rico as a state immediately if it chose to. But there's also the process of also incorporation, which it's, it's basically, I like to call it, is D.C. without the federal representation given to you because you are given the same rights and benefits. You just don't have the representation, which the 23rd Amendment gave D.C. So I just wanted to open that conversation and see what are your thoughts on the Puerto Rico Status Act? Because I know that it's, that's one of the bills that are, is mentioned in the memorandum as a way to resolve this issue. Well, yeah, yeah, I think, I think in the, any bill that goes to Congress that tries to put forth the state and solve the, the situation is something which needs to be and receive the support, I think, of every, of every Puerto Rican. So in that regard, I, I favor a process, a congressional process, to address the question. There are some issues in that particular bill, and this bill basically repeats the bill we had the previous Congress, which to me it creates some certain problems. Um, and I know I'm a minority within groups of, of statehoods on that issue. I agree that the alternatives to solve the problem are statehood, independence, and uh, free association. I think the territory under constitutional law is an alternative, you know, but in Puerto Rico that, that category has always been linked to the Commonwealth, or in Spanish, el Estado Libre Asociado de Puerto Rico. And I've always insisted that the Estado Libre Asociado de Puerto Rico is not a status. The status is a territory, independence, or statehood. Those are the status questions or positions. For political reasons, the, favors, the people who favor the Commonwealth have always argued that Estado Libre Asociado needs to be an alternative. It doesn't have to be an alternative, but that's not an alternative. That's just a, the name of the government of Puerto Rico. So that's a question that I think has to be, be very clear. Uh, and I know there are certain sectors in the American government that need to want the territory as an alternative. The reason for that, I think, is because they want to keep the uniformity clause ongoing, uh, the, the exclusion of the uniformity clause applying in Puerto Rico. So that's an issue, I think, that needs to be addressed at some point in one way or the other. The other issue is the issue of the, the status bill of American citizenship. And there I have a political question, uh, objection to the status. I know you mentioned that it was a consensus bill, but it was really a consensus bill only on one side of the aisle. It wasn't a consensus bill on the Republican side, which we know has been, I would say, uh, intervened by current uh, Republican positions, particularly in the Trump administration and how they take a position, which I think is inimical to the interests of Puerto Rico, by the way. 
but the whole idea that, that Puerto Rico could opt for independence or freedom, a free association with American citizenship for a given period of time, I think is a really impossible situation for a Republican. It's probably for the Republican Party. I think that, I think that's a poison pill. Right, because we do have uh, nations who are independent and have a uh, compact of free association, Micronesia, Palau, and the Marshall Islands, but none of them extend U.S. citizenship. Take, take it from the position, of, perhaps, of a, of a diehard Republican uh, position, not Trumpian necessarily, but Republican. And we'll say, say, well, if you want independence, why do you want to keep my citizenship? This is oil and water. And I think that that's why, it, that's my, my major objection to the bill is, is in the language that it has, is that it became basically, it made the statehood a democratic issue, not a national issue. And I think that the, the, the fact that we have, I think, 20, and correct me if I'm wrong, George, I think you have 20 Republicans in the House that voted with the bill. It was 16, it was 16, 16 that voted for us. I think in, it's indicative uh, basically that the Republican Party does not, does not see that bill as a, a way to move forward. One of the things that I would say is I think that that's precisely the reason why it's so important that during this session of Congress, where Republicans do have control of the House and of the Committee of Jurisdiction, Mr. Bruce Westerman, who was a ranking member when the Puerto Rico Status Act passed the House, is now the chairman of the committee. He has the opportunity to bring this issue up for hearings so that these perspectives can be brought to bear. And that way, whatever Republican perspectives and views were not represented in the legislative process of bringing the Puerto Rico Status Act together can actually be brought forth and we can realize and, and have a clear idea of what are those objections and then what are the steps that can be taken in the legislative process to make this bill better or to come up with an alternative solution that does work and that Republicans are willing to sponsor. So I think that's one of the key things that right now is one of the objectives that that we need to push for within the uh, statehood movement to continue advancing this discussion. I would agree with that. I think that would that would be a good way to move the, the ball forward. I think, unfortunately, that given the current political climate, the issue of Puerto Rico has become a hostage to other to other issues. So I think the whole national debate on immigration, on, on Democrats with Republicans, the values, quote-unquote, of what it means to be an American citizen in this current times, we've become basically a, a hot potato for the Republicans, I mean. So I, I, even though I would welcome a, a hearings in, in Congress, in the House and in the Senate, I, I don't think that will happen within this coming months. I think we have to wait for the 20, after 2024 election. I still have a little bit of hope for hearing yeah, this same Congress. Here. <laughs> I, 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 hope, I hope I'm wrong and you're right. So, Andres, bringing it back to the work of the advisory committee, I, I think the information that you've shared with us and the perspectives have been incredibly useful. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you see the work of the advisory committee advancing the conversation? Because in this scenario where Congress is having a lot of difficulty getting anything done, and where you're seeing the potential for further hearings on this issue, particularly the House, to be challenging possibilities within the realm of potential, but it's challenging. Why is the work of the advisory committee so important right now in terms of continuing to advance the issue, document it, and, and help raise greater awareness about the need for Congress and the American public as a whole to take action on this? Well, I think it's important to realize that the history of the Civil Rights Commission in the United States, you know, it's a creature. It's a creature of bipartisanship in the late 50s in the Eisenhower and the Kennedy administration when they apply in the whole of voting rights and, and equal rights to American citizens in the, in the political process. 
so at the beginning with the Civil Rights Commission had advisory boards for all the states but not for the territories. Uh, so now it creates in 2020 for the territories. Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico and Guam all have their advisory boards. It's interesting, by the way, to note that the advisory board for the Virgin Islands has the same topic. Uh, so we've, so we, we, are, we are in the same, in the same, I would say, wavelength in that regard. Um, so I think it's important to to understand within the American institu government institutional history, the, Ameri the advisory board will be the first time where a, a branch of the, of the executive were basically taking a position on the insular cases and condemning them. Even even in the cases before, where you've had basically the, the Department of Justice or or some other agency talk about uh, the relationship between Puerto Rico and, and the United States, they always do so avoiding mentioning the insular cases and avoiding uh, the non -incorpor the incorporated territory. So this is for, for purpose of documenting within the American government, I think the advisory board's role is very very important because we are documenting for the American government within the American government that in fact this uh, this arrangement has to change. This cannot continue. Uh, the rights of the American citizens are being trampled on in Puerto Rico for very unfounded and, and questionable reasons. So in that, that regard, I, I think that the task we have before us, and this is the first memorandum we've, we've come out with, the three more that should be coming out. The second one, which we're working on right now, is precisely on the economic end of it and the uniformity clause. And we had hearings in September on that issue when we were preparing now the second memorandum on how the insular case in the non-corporated doctrine buttresses economic interests of foreign corporations in Puerto Rico, foreign quote-unquote under IRS uh, language, which prejudices the people of Puerto Rico. And I think that's been one of the fundamental issues of the, of the, of the category. Then we'll have to have, we have later memorandums on the participation in federal programs which is also, Valle Madero, I think, is emblematic of that, at that point. You know, why an American citizen in New York moves to Puerto Rico and loses the right to receive SSI. The, the only justification in, in Valle Madero is because Puerto Rico is a different jurisdiction and Congress has the authority to basically to legislate and regulate uh, differently. It's interesting in Valle Madero, the, the majority opinion avoids at all costs mentioning that there, there are insular cases and the non-incorporated doctrine. But in fact, it just defends it. So that, that and I think, that, I think it's always, and we mentioned it in the memorandum, it's always important, I think, to draw attention to Gorsuch's opinion, condemning, seriously condemning the insert cases having no basis on constitutional law. The same thing with Sotomayor's uh, uh, concurrent opinion. And one of the things that I'm observing is that statements like that uh, are basically signs of encouragement to those who think that going through the judicial process, there's a capacity to advance the resolution of this issue. And I think that in those cases is definitely are definitely important in order to further clarify what the nature of the territorial relationship is between the federal government and Puerto Rico. But ultimately, as you said, this is a political question. Under the U.S. constitutional framework, the judicial branch doesn't have the main jurisdiction or capacity to deal with political questions. Those belong in the realm of Congress, the legislative branch, and uh, the president, which is the executive branch. Those are the entities that really will drive this issue forward. So getting back to the, the recommendations in the memorandum, do you believe that 
the work that the advisory committee is doing now can help set up a circumstance where the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights as a whole may at some point provide a recommendation to Congress to pass legislation on this issue. So that's the purpose. First of all, it's important to, to realize that the, the memorandum, this first memorandum and the next three memorandums, we are documenting pe the position of different people. I think you included, you appeared in there with your hearings, uh, what their position is and their understanding of it. So we, at this stage, we're just documenting. So the advisory board has still has not taken a position, an official position on what it stands for or does not stand for. That will be in our last memorandum and that will be our final recommendation. I know I, I have my, my recommendation, but I, and I speak now for the procedurally for the, for the advisory board, yep. but I'd have to wait basically until everybody has opportunity to basically express themselves in, in that position. Uh, but my hope would be basically that the advisory committee will submit to the Civil Rights Commission a position which will be uh, uh, taken by the civil rights as a whole and recommend some, some, kind of, some kind of resolution to this question. That's my hope. That's why I'm in it. That's, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not here to defend the insular cases that are by no means of the imagination. Thank you again for uh, joining us today. I was hoping that you could tell us what can statehood supporters do to urge Congress to act. Well, as, as we say, the, the political process, I think with the work you're doing here in Mano a Mano is, is part of the process that has to be seriously done, not only by you, but I think by everybody in stateside in and in Puerto Rico. So it is a political process. I think Puerto Ricans who live, were living in or in Florida, we're living in New York, Philadelphia, Chicago, all across the states, should exercise basically their good offices and good, good efforts basically with their congressmen to address the question. But here in Puerto Rico, as a territory, what we can say is just basically lends itself to being ignored with much facility because we don't have voting representation. I think that what you're saying is really critical to, to kind of highlight for the audience and for the listeners. You know, we really need to help people get more educated and become more aware of this. And that's why the work of the advisory committee is so important. And eventually the work that the U.S. Commission will do on this is so critical because it's helping to really inform and educate people about what's going on. The next thing is really to activate so people to get in touch with their members of Congress, to communicate to them the unacceptable nature of unequal territory status and what it's doing to the U.S. citizens of Puerto Rico, and then ultimately to organize and collaborate together because really the vast majority of people that are impacted by this do reside on the island. But, you know, they don't have a direct chain of communication with voting members of Congress that have the capacity to change this. Unfortunately, there's what is described in the in the advisory committee report, a Democrat deficit. That's kind of a gap between the needs of the people being impacted by this issue and the body legislatively that has the capacity to respond to that. And I think that's where all of the allies stateside, whether members of the Puerto Rican community, which are now you know over 5 million, almost 6 million strong, or all other Americans that just believe in the fundamental rights of democracy, inequality, and government by the consent of the government, that's where we have the possibility of coordinating, collaborating, organizing, and then you know bringing that message that the American people you know don't want to continue having you know some people may call them colonies. In your case, you want to focus on calling them territories. Either way, um, uh, a situation where we have um, fellow U.S. citizens that are being treated unequally and denied their fundamental rights. I agree. With, I agree with that, hundred percent. And, uh, and I would add also to that is, I think it's important for statehooders in the in the state side, 
uh, to also link with groups of, of Hispanics in, in, in the United States at a general level. Uh, it, is, it is not, you know, we're calling things by the name. Puerto Rico as a state would be a Hispanic state. Definitely. That, that's what it will be. So we, our, our political allies will be also in Congress, probably people who have similar concerns and preoccupations and interests. Uh, so we need to start addressing and get out, leave our bubble here in the island and insert ourselves in the debates at a national level. And I think many Puerto Rican politics, unfortunately, uh, assumes that we are la isla barataria, to use Cervantes uh, <laughs> model. Uh, we have to realize that we are part of a larger, of a larger police. Yeah, and, and, and likewise, I think that, you know, um, uh, Hispanic uh, groups and organizations stateside also have the responsibility and an opportunity to connect with the needs and challenges that are happening to their fellow U.S. citizens in Puerto Rico, uh, because we often see that national Hispanic organizations um, have basically ignored this issue or treaded very lightly around it. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons that right now we have this incredible uh, opportunity to advance this, because whether uh, you're on the side of those in Congress who support Puerto Rico uh, becoming an independent country or gaining free association, or you're on the side of those who support full equality and democracy through uh, statehood, you know, we, we have a recognition that there is a problem that needs to be addressed and that we can set up a process to address it. So the organizations that have been afraid of kind of taking sides can really now focus on how can we support a process where our fellow citizens on the island can have a chance to make their own decision and finally stop the colony and, you know, uh, unleash Puerto Rico's potential, be that as a state, which is what obviously we prefer, or for the voters uh, in Puerto Rico were to choose that as an independent country with or without free association. All right, Professor Cordova. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for the work of the advisory committee. Uh, we'll be uh, adding a link to the advisory committee memo in the show notes for our listeners. So you guys can read the work that Professor Cordova and the rest of the advisory committee is doing. And we'd love to stay in touch with you and hear as your process advances in the advisory committee. Thank you so much for your work and thank you for your time today on the show. Thank you, George and Martin.